Father, it is our desire that we might know your word and know truth to the extent that we become powerful, articulate messengers of hope in the age in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen. There were two young boys who were always getting in trouble at school. Know anybody like that? They always disrupted the class. They made fun of their classmates. Well, mom got tired of this and decided that the pastor needed to come over and talk to these two kids. So the pastor came over and he wanted the kids to understand that God is everywhere. God sees everything and God is displeased when people act wrongly. But he wanted to speak subtly and have the kids come up with their own conclusions. So he said, boys, I'm going to ask you a question. Where is God? No answer. They, they didn't quite understand what he wanted. Second time, he became a little firmer and he said, where is God? Surely you know the answer to such a simple question. They looked at each other, a little bit scared and intimidated by the tone of voice, didn't say anything. Then finally, the pastor said, where is God? The older boy turned to the younger and said, come on, let's get out of here. God's missing and they think we did it. I feel that way about Jesus Christ. He's been missing from our culture for some time now. Where is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And the thing is, he's been missing and they think we did it. You see, it's the evangelical Christians that are being pointed to as the reason why the historical Jesus is unknown. Our age has been called by, by a lot of different titles. The age of anxiety is what Newsweek magazine gave it a few years back. It was predicted at one time that this would be the age of Aquarius. It has been called the information age because of the Internet and its technological advances. I would call it the age of confusion. We in this culture are confused about life, death, spirituality, God, and especially concerning the person of Jesus Christ. And that's the reason for this series. Because our response to people when they ask us, well, who is Jesus? What is it? matter if I believe in Jesus or anything. Our answer is like the older kid. Come on, let's get out of here. In John chapter 1, there are truths that the, the gospel here begins with that we often take for granted. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And then notice it gets personalized. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, that is, the word who was with God and was God. And without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not extinguish it. It says comprehend here, but overpower it, overcome it. Skip over to the third chapter. Verse 35, the father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the son has everlasting life. He who does not believe in the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. I was raised in a religious atmosphere. I was raised culturally, at least, to be a Christian. 
But whenever somebody asked me or challenged me about my faith, the best I could come up with, the best I could say was, well, I have my belief and you have yours. That was it. In other words, like the older kid, come on, let's get out of here. God's missing and they think I did it. Something happened to me in 1973. That was the year I was born. I'm just kidding. That's the year I was born again. I was saved in 1973. A fundamental difference occurred in my relationship with God in 1973. It was at that point that I decided to move from the theoretical about God to the personal. I didn't want to deal with Christ forensically. I wanted to deal with him one-on-one. I wanted to see if he would really change my life, and he did, and he does. A few months after that conversion experience, though, I was in a college class, integrated zoology. First question out of the teacher's mouth, who here is a Christian? So I went, thinking, what, is he a Christian too? <laughs> then I became the... Um, the target for the rest of that class session. About a year later, I was in another college class, physical anatomy. And the teacher talked about how that Christians who believe in creation are dunces, and of course we know that evolution is the way to go, and look at the hairs on your arm, how they all point downward because our ancestors hung on trees and the sweat trickled down, and that's the... She went on and on about this. And I was confronted with ideologies and philosophies I had never heard before. The philosophies of Immanuel Kant and Soren Kierkegaard and David Hume, Thomas Paine, etc. And I had very interesting and animated conversations with people. Some were honest questions, others were very antagonistic. And I got a quick education in American culture. We live in a pluralistic society. In other words, a society with several different viewpoints or worldviews. There aren't just one, there are several of them. All of the worldviews, however, none of them is as exclusive as the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview seems so arrogant to the non-believer as we say, I know the reason for which I was born. I know where I'm going. And Jesus Christ is the way to heaven. It's a very narrow road, a very exclusive ideology. And that bothers a lot of folks. In fact, we must seem to the unbelievers, we must seem a lot like that guy in the 1980s named Alan Michael who ran for president. You probably didn't hear about him because his whole campaign was derailed, and I'll tell you why. At first, it sounded great. He was from Stockton, California. I know the answers, he said, to inflation. I know the answers to unemployment. I know the answer and how to fix war, and he went on and on. But then he said he got all the answers when he was beamed aboard a spaceship in 1947. (laughs) Suddenly, nobody took him seriously. Okay, think for a moment what it sounds like to the non-believer who hears us say, well, you know, God spoke to me or God laid it on my heart. It's like, what? You think you hear from God? You think God is talking to you? Now, although we live in a pluralistic culture, many different viewpoints, there are two streams of thought. They, They are divergent, but they are two streams of thought that are growing. 
It is an age of spiritual doubt on one hand. But it's also an age of spirituality on another hand. And both are growing. And I want to cover those this morning. What I'd like to do is sort of paint the background before we get into this series so that we know where we're at, where we're going, what's going on around us. Now, some of these isms that you see listed in your outline, uh, they are uh, designations of beliefs. Some of them overlap. There are many more delineations than these, but we don't have time So I I have painted with a broom on purpose, just to give us the idea. Our age is an age of doubt spiritually. Our age reminds me of Matthew 28 after the resurrection. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. That's our age. It's an age of doubt. You know this to be true. Every generation challenges the old generation, the old ways, the old ways of doing things, the old standards, the old belief system. You did it with your parents. Your kids are doing it with you. And so the cycle will go. And we all say it. Well, in my day, kids are so much this way today. But in my day, that's been going on forever, folks. And people rethink in every generation God and in our generation Jesus. Because he's the foundation of Western civilization. How many articles have you seen on Jesus in the past several years? In Newsweek, Time, USA Today, U.S. News and World Report. Oodles of them. They're everywhere. Every Christmas and Easter is the obligatory Jesus article for these magazines. But they're spinning him differently. Who is he? Who was he? Was he historical? Did he exist? Is he what Christians say he is? Now, the controversy about Christ has been going on since Jesus was on the earth. The Magi who came from the east said he is the king of the Jews. The Pharisees in Jerusalem at first said of Jesus, he is a teacher come from God. Later, they changed their tune and they said he is born of fornication. In other words, he's an illegitimate child. Herod Antipas who killed John the Baptist, said he is Jesus Christ risen from the dead. Simon Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Various opinions. To some people today, Jesus is good, noble, honorable. The Muslims call him a great prophet. Others will say he's an ascended master. Napoleon Bonaparte once said of Jesus that he is uh, more than a man. How much more, he didn't say. Strauss, the German rationalist, said Jesus Christ is the highest ideal of human religion. In the 1960s, some said Jesus Christ was a superstar. Who is he? The Jesus Seminar is a newer group that has emerged. They meet twice a year. And when they meet, they vote on the words of Jesus. They each vote, and they get to vote that of all the words in the Gospels, Jesus didn't say that, or he may have said that, or he did say that. He did, didn't, or may have. And so they vote among themselves, and they decide which words of the Gospel are true and which are false. The Jesus Seminar, this group of scholars, say, quote, Jesus may have been a carpenter, probably he was illiterate and belonged to a low caste of artisans. 
he did not preach salvation from sin through sacrifice. He may, he never cured any diseases. As for other miracles, no loaves and fishes, no water into wine, no raising of Lazarus, and certainly no resurrection. What happened to his body then? Most likely it was consumed by wild dogs. Robert Funk is the spokesman of the Jesus Seminar who said it's time to set Jesus free. Set him free from his claims of resurrection, claims of divinity. And so the Jesus Seminar is out there setting Jesus free. In our culture where there is spiritual doubt, I've outlined three strands of thought here. You you know them already. Let's recap them. There are atheists. There are agnostics. And there are relativists. And sometimes these lines overlap. Atheism comes from the Greek a-theos. A is the negative. It means without. And theos, God. Without God. There is no God. I am without any evidence that there is a God. That's atheism. Bertrand Russell was the noted British atheist who said mankind is simply a curious accident. There's no compelling evidence to believe that there is a God. But I've discovered something, perhaps not about all atheists, but about many of them, that that some atheists cannot find God for the same reason a thief cannot find a policeman. They're not looking for him. I also found out that down in Florida, there's a new program, a phone program called Dial an Atheist. You've heard of Dial a Prayer. That's been going on for a long time. If you're in agony, if you're needing comfort, you call Dial a Prayer. But now there's Dial an Atheist put on by the American Atheist Foundation, the chapter in Florida. But who do you know, honestly? who's burdened by guilt or fear or depression, who would want to call dial an atheist? (laughs) Then there is agnosticism. Agnosis, without knowledge. The agnostic says there may be a God. He or she may exist. But I'm not certain I don't know. I am agnosis. I am without knowledge. I don't have sufficient knowledge. An agnostic is one big question mark going through life looking for answers. An honest agnostic is commendable if he or she practices agnosticism correctly. Most don't. Most say, well, I'm just an agnostic, which means later on. I don't want anything to do with it. A true agnostic will do anything he or she can to find out what's the truth. Is there a God? They'll look for the lines of evidence. Why? Because everything depends on it. Everything here and everything in eternity depends on knowing if there's a God or not. If they're wrong about God, there's more at stake than for the Christian who may be wrong. Unfortunately, what often happens to the agnostic is they become very self-indulgent. Because after all, if I don't know God exists and I can't know that God exists, then I might as well have as much fun as I possibly can before I die. So before I kick the bucket, I'm going to become Epicurean. I'm going to just do eat, drink, and be merry. Have fun. Then there's relativism. You know what that means. Truth is relative. You might say, this is the truth. And somebody will say, well... It's true for you. 
but it may not be true for me. A relativist holds that ethical standards depend on the individual or the group that holds those standards. This was the philosophy of Pontius Pilate. When Jesus stood before Pilate and he spoke to him about truth, all Pilate could say is, what is truth? As if to say, it's a sliding scale. We don't know what truth is. This was the philosophy of the ancient Israelites in the book of Judges. It says, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. You do what is right in your own eyes. In other words, self is the value detector of life. There is no universal base of right and wrong. There is no moral consensus. I decide what's right for me. That's a relativist. It was first coined by a 5th century Greek philosopher named Protagoras. And you've probably heard this. He said, man is the measure of all things. Man is the measure of all things. That's relativism. In such a framework as that, if you start speaking about absolute truth, people will get uncomfortable. You start saying, I know the truth. I know the answers. You can't say that. You're arrogant, they would say. When did this all start in our culture? Well, it's, it's, been, it's been a slow train coming, as Bob Dylan once said. It's been an ongoing process. But about the 1950s, some of you are from that era or before, that was sort of the last decade where there was a moral consensus in this country. It was post-war. We had a high hope for the future, uh, a car in every garage, a washing machine in every house. Things are going to get better. And there's this huge moral consensus in this country. That was the last decade. George Gallup wrote of that era. He called it a shared public faith in the nation, a faith linked to people's everyday life through a set of beliefs. Back then, if people wanted to know what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, they would check the moral consensus. No longer is that true. If people want to know what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is bad, they ask themselves. What that means is this. Your parents, your grandparents saw things in black and white. We see things in shades of gray. There's no way to really pin an absolute position. That's relativism. Well, that's one strand of thought in our culture, spiritual doubt. At the same time, there is a growing spirituality. There is a set of spiritual ideas that are greater than ever before. God is getting press these days. On PBS with Bill Moyers, um, in USA Today, uh, even uh, the other day when they were talking about Dick Cheney, our vice president who was having this pacemaker installed yesterday, and they were talking about reasons for stress. They assumed that it was stress-related. And so they talked about stress and how to deal with stress and medical conditions and how to be in physical shape. And the expert they were talking to said, now let's not forget spirituality. We all need a higher power. We all need to place our faith in something, someone. Now, a few years ago, that just never happened on the news. The G word has gotten popular again. God, he said it. Everybody's saying it. 
George Barna writes this, Americans are probably more interested in spiritual matters than they have been at any time in the past 40 years. University of Chicago's Robert Fogel said, We are seeing evidence of a fourth great awakening of religious fervor in America. So here we have this spiritual awakening happening side by side with spiritual doubt. How? What does it look like? I've given you three terms. Again, don't be, uh, don't be thrown by these terms, especially the first one. It sounds like, oh, Skip went to the dictionary this week. He tried to find big words. Now, this happens to be the best word to sum up this ideology. Syncretism. All that means is I take different beliefs or different ideas from different belief systems and put them all together. They may be contradictory belief systems, but I'm going to have a little bit of this, a little bit of that, put it all together. So you have Christianity, Buddhism, Hinduism, kind of stuff together. I call this smorgasbord spirituality. Pick and choose spirituality. It sounds something like this. Yeah, I'll have a small order of Christianity. Hold the guilt. I'm on a guilt-free diet this week. And a side of Buddhism and Hinduism with those New Age spices. I love those spices. In this way of thinking, all religions are the same. All roads lead to God. All point to God. Now, it's funny because that doesn't work in real life. If you go down to Big Eye and decide I'm going to turn left or turn right, you're going to end up in two different places, not all the same place. But somehow, spiritually, it really doesn't matter. All religions really are the same and all roads lead to God. New York Times editor Gustav Niebuhr said, Today we're witnessing a mass movement of individual seekers. More and more they are shunning labels and drawing from several, listen to this, several contradictory belief systems. Example, Ted Turner. You know, Turner Broadcasting, CNN, married to Jane Fonda, who recently became a Christian. Ted Turner, who said Christianity is a religion for losers. That Ted Turner. Well, Ted Turner has recently hosted the first Millennium World Peace Summit, sponsored by Ford Motor Company, Carnegie Foundation, and others. He says he now believes there is one God who manifests himself differently through all the religions of the world. He brought together Buddhists and Shintos and Hindus and Christians and everybody for this peace summit. It's all the same. Syncretism. Second is spiritualism. I mentioned God is making a comeback. This is one of the most incredible, noteworthy sociological phenomena in our era. There is today around the globe a greater percentage of the world's population that believes in God than in any other time in history. I'm talking percentage here. There's a greater percentage of the world's population believing in God than at any other time in human history. But in our culture, in America, what we're after more than anything else is the experience How does it feel rather than the facts? Is it true? If it feels good as a religious experience, it's somehow instantly validated. Truth isn't the issue. So that if you share your testimony with people, Hi, I'm Skip. Before I came to Christ, I was in sin and I did this and I did that. But Jesus changed my life and he gave me peace and hope. This is the response you get. Isn't that special? Isn't that wonderful for you? 
It's good that you found something for your life. But if you say, oh, no, no, no. It's not just true for me. It's also equally true for you and everyone. You just put up the war flag. You can't say that. You will have sparks fly even from the very religious. Because you cannot have a corner on absolute truth or an experience like that. For many of these people who are spiritual in nature, spiritualism, it's not important what you believe. It's only important that you believe something and you don't hurt anybody. You believe something great. It's important that you have a force. They don't consider the source. May the force be with you, whatever that is. As long as you are sincere, that's all you need. There's a third strand of this spirituality in our country. I call it pietism. Pietism. This is the religion of good works. This is the religion of the nice guy. This is the religion of the swell person. You've heard it. Well, why shouldn't he go to heaven? He's good. He does a lot of good things. He does many good works. In fact, he's a lot better than a lot of Christians I know. Pietism. Somebody asked Jesus one time in John chapter 6, what must we do to work the works of God? Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one that he has sent. Okay, we want to work our way to God. What do we do? You you, you believe in the one who came to do the work. They didn't like his answer. That wasn't good enough for them. They were offended at his answer. How many of you remember that 1960s song called The Last Kiss? Come on, don't be shy. I'll tell you the words. See if you remember. Oh, where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. Come on. You're old. (laughs) Oh, where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so I've got to be good so I can see my baby when I leave this world. In other words, here's the theology of the song. If you're a good person, whatever good means, you'll get to heaven. Many people who go to church week after week are nothing more than pietists. They're not Christians. They're not. They don't believe in the exclusive Jesus Christ. They're not committed to him. They're committed to church is important, family's good, and I should be a good person. But it's not a commitment to Jesus Christ. It's all about their goodness. Not about the finished work of Jesus on a bloody cross. That's pietism. Now, that's, that's our age. We have an age of spiritual doubt, an age of spiritual ideas. It's also an age, I hope, of spiritual answers. At least it should become that. You see, we ought to be ready to give good answers to people who have good questions. Instead of saying, I'm going to get out of here. God's missing. And they think, I did it. We've got to come up with something better than that. In 1 Peter chapter 3, the apostle writes, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, this is 1 Peter three fourteen and 15. If you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed, and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. We need an army of such people 
who when the questions get leveled at us, we can say, rather than, we can say, I'm glad you asked that question. An age of spiritual answers. Many a skeptic has been converted after an honest search into the claims of Christianity and the evidence for it. Simon Greenleaf was the founder of Harvard Law School and wrote great defenses for the Christian gospel. Josh McDowell and several others. Frank Morrison, a lawyer who was convinced Jesus was a fraud, looked at the evidence, became a Christian. But what do we say? What answers do we give to all of these different belief groups? What do we say to the atheist? How do we treat them? Do we treat them like Plato? You know, everybody talks about Plato, this great philosopher. Do you know that Plato said that you cannot trust an atheist? In fact, that if convicted of impiety twice, the atheist should be executed. No, we ought to treat the atheist with respect, first of all. Rather than mocking the atheist, we should treat him with respect. That is their religion, after all. Jesus said men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Neither would they come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed. Treat them with respect. Give them answers. And live a lifestyle in front of them. One of the primary reasons there are atheists is that there are Christians who don't practice what they preach. But when you get a godly, articulate man or woman giving good, solid answers for the Christian faith, it's compelling even to an atheist. What about the agnostic who says, I don't know? Tell them how they can know. Show them the evidence. And as agnosticism often leads to indulgence, as we said. And so here they are saying, I don't know if God exists, but I'm going to have as much fun and as much joy as I can before I die. Show them. They're itching, man. They're wanting to find peace and forgiveness and joy. Speak to their need of wanting to find those answers. Speak to the emptiness that's in their heart. What do we say to the relativist who says truth is a sliding scale? Your values may not be his values, but it's all good. Now, can you imagine what that would be like if you're in a college class and your professor stands up? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to tell you the truth is relative. What is good for me may not be good for you. Okay, when he says that, go over to his desk, pull out his drawer, take whatever you'd like to take home with you, pens, pencils, whatever, his wallet, throw his papers all around the room. What is he going to say to you? He's going to say, stop that. Why? Because it's wrong. Well, with all due respect, Professor, it may be wrong for you. <laughs> but I see nothing wrong with it personally. I am simply following your ideology. Now, I, I'm not advocating you do that. I'll have lawsuits all year long. Or take that thinking to its extreme. How can you blame the Nazis for killing six million Jews? They were sincere in their beliefs to exterminate that race. They were sincere that they were the master race. That was their parameters. See, challenge these belief systems. Don't let them go unchallenged, unmet. What do you say to the syncretist who says all religions are the same? They speak of the same God. It's the same God, just on different terms. Examine what was just said. It began with an invalid premise. The premise assumes that the gods of Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, Judaism are all the same. And they ought to be at least the same in their fundamental consistencies. 
But if you examine the God of Hinduism, Buddhism, Christianity, etc., you find that these are contradictory definitions of God and therefore mutually exclusive. They can all be wrong, but they can't all be right. The God of the Hindus, in the writings of the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita, speak about monism. The universe is a seamless garment. God is the universe. The universe is God. You are God. I am God. The tree is God. The bush is God. The sky is God. The God of the Buddhists is impersonal. The God of the Bible is personal and the creator and transcendent from his creation. So how can you have God who is impersonal and personal at the same time? How can you have a God who is part of his creation, yet separate and distinct and transcendent from his creation? Answer, you can't. So to say that all the gods are the same betrays an ignorance of the tenets of these religious systems. They are contradictory and mutually exclusive. And Jesus was right, I believe, when he said, enter into the narrow gate. For narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. Wide is the gate that leads to destruction, and many enter therein. The wide gate is not the right gate. The narrow gate is the right gate. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the door. He who climbs in some other way is a thief and a robber. These are exclusive claims. What do we say to the spiritualist who says it doesn't matter as long as you're sincere? Ask him this question. Say, spiritualist, there's a blind man at the edge of a cliff asking you which way he should step. What are you going to tell him? Doesn't matter as long as you're sincere. (laughs) Tolerance is not a virtue here. Truth is. Or if you go to the doctor and you have cancer and he says, well, you have cancer and we could operate or radiate or chemotherapy or you could go home. Well, what should I do, doc? Doesn't matter as long as you're sincere. (laughs) Those aren't good answers given that. What about the pietist person who says, as long as you're a good person, that's how you get to heaven. What I say is this. I agree with you, but whose definition of good are we going to work off of? My definition, your definition, Hitler's definition? Or are we going to work off God's definition? Well, what do you mean? Well, somebody came up to Jesus in Matthew 19, a rich young ruler, and he said, good master, what must I do to inherit everlasting life? Jesus said, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good, and that is God. Oh, Jesus suddenly challenges our definition of what a good person is. He says there's only one person who has the right to the title good, and that's God. Why do you call me good? There's only one who is good, and that's God. Jesus is either saying to the guy, I'm no good, or I am God. Why do you call me good? So if you're going to say, all you have to do is be a good person. You're right, as good as God. Well, nobody's as good as God. That's why Jesus died on the cross. Because nobody's good except God. It comes down to this fundamental issue. If I can get to heaven and attain salvation by my good works, why did Jesus Christ suffer and die on a cross? 
Why didn't he just come and say, I've got a few good ideas. Here's the Sermon on the Mount. Here's a few Beatitudes. I'm out of here now. (laughs) Why suffer the ignominious death of the cross? He said it in his prayer. Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. I want to sum up this morning by a paragraph I found by James Hefley. He, He takes Jesus and he casts him in the light of history And shows us why he is unique. Here is a man, says Hefley, who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. And then for three years he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While he was young, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. He was turned over to his enemies. He went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled for the only piece of property he had on earth while he was dying, and that was his coat. When he was dead, he was taken down and laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Such was his human life. But then he rose from the dead. Nineteen wide centuries have come and gone. We would say twenty now. He is the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. I am within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, all of the navies that were ever built, all of the parliaments that ever sat, all of the kings that have ever reigned put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has that one solitary life. In the last week, you proved that to be true when you signed your check and you had to write the date 2001. You're still bearing eloquent testimony to the fact that our history revolves around the coming life and death of Jesus Christ. Anno Domini. Heavenly Father, it's that one solitary life that we examine the next several weeks. We pray for your grace in doing so. That as we look at the uniqueness of Jesus of Nazareth, the uniqueness of the Christian gospel, we would see the historic living Jesus for who he really is. That the obscurity would be banished. The trappings would be taken away. Not only would we see him, but we would respond to him. Many of us who come that still may be agnostic or pietistic or relativists, we'd come to a place of absolute trust in the one and only Son of God, God in human flesh, come from heaven. Lord, I pray that you would give us the needed answers to be able to articulate in a godly lifestyle the reason we are who we are. To not be afraid nor intimidated, but to stand up in this world of differing ideas. It's not an easy task, but you said we should always be ready to give a defense. And Father, for those who don't know you personally today, we pray that they would come to know you. That's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.